This is an ABC podcast. Hooray for Hollywood, show business capital of the world. And here I am on Hollywood's Walk of Fame. These 15 blocks home to more than 2,700 stars set into the sidewalk. There's Marilyn Monroe's star right, right there at my feet. Oh, Quentin Tarantino. I've got Kate Blanchett. Uh, Donald Trump. Hollywood, that pocket of glamour in LA's almost incomprehensible sprawl, a city of 1,295 square kilometres. Look at those palm trees reaching for the sky. Look at the fabulous somebodies passing me by. It's, it's hard to believe this place, Hollywood Boulevard, was a dirt road at the beginning of the last century, a track lined by onion fields. And now we have, in the words of American writer and poet Dorothy Parker, 72 suburbs in search of a city. And like flies to something sweet and sticky, people come to this place still to realise their dreams of fame. So, what does it take to make it in Hollywood? Where do I stay? What do I eat? How do I act? I'm here to find out. Attention passengers. Jonathan Green, this is Return Ticket, the podcast that takes you on journeys of the mind to the near and the far-flung. We're searching for what the tourist never sees. In coming episodes, I'll ask the critical question, is Tasmania terrible? What does Timbuktu have to say about us? And sync with the rhythms of Ho Chi Minh City. Hollywood. Hooray. <laughs> I want razzle-dazzle. I want a sense of the seedy. I want I want a lounge that is louche. Sunset Boulevard. I'm, I'm ready for my close-up. I'm, I'm off to visit a place synonymous with that strange mix of, of low-balling high life that is the, the mythic Hollywood. I'm off to the legend that is the Chateau Marmont. This place has seen it all. Decadence, on call, scandal, eccentricity, fame, sex, drugs and murder. All in a string of suites and privacy premium bungalows. It opened in 1929. Then it was a a fantasy in a field. Now, well, a well-lived-in legend. This place, the Columbia Pictures president, Harry Conn, he once said, if you must get into trouble... Go to the Marmont. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Hi, I'm Sean Levy, author of The Castle on Sunset, Life, Death, Love, Art and Scandal at Hollywood's Chateau Marmont. And here, Sean, we are, 8221 Sunset Boulevard. Chateau Marmont. Just locate us in, in, in broader Hollywood. Where are we now? We're actually very near the place where Hollywood proper ends and West Hollywood begins. Chateau Marmont is, I like to think of it as the Rock of Gibraltar marking the beginning of the Sunset Strip. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic image. Take us back, Sean, because once upon a time, Sunset Boulevard was just a little dirt road. 
That's right. It was it was in an unincorporated part of Los Angeles County. It wasn't a city itself, and it was bestrided on one side by Hollywood and on the other side by Beverly Hills. And when the chateau was built in the late 1920s, Sunset Boulevard was a dirt road through this stretch of town uh, lined with onion fields. It's quite a change. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of the richest stretches of road in the world right now. So how much does the story of this chateau, how much is that the story of Hollywood itself? Oh, quite a bit. You know, um, if you think about the movies in the 1920s, you know, it was a very rich enterprise, but it was also a bit like uh, drilling for oil. You didn't know if you were going to hit a gusher or, or lose your shirt. And Fred Horowitz, the man who conceived building what was then the tallest building in the area, he bet everything he had on it. And again, he was building alongside a dirt road, luxury apartment building at the time. Why was he inspired by the provincial French architecture? He had traveled uh, um, in France after the First World War and he fell in love with the Chateau d'Ambois in the Loire Valley, the place where Leonardo da Vinci is entombed. And he commissioned his brother-in-law, who was an architect, to build a building along the lines of that building. Is it a pretty close approximation, do you think? I mean, describe what we're seeing. You know, it's basically an L-shaped building with a lot of Gothic turrets. It's um, vaguely ziggurat-shaped, so you have terraces on all of the upper floors, which get narrower as you rise. It used to be quite monumental on that corner, and now it's almost dainty. You can drive past it because of the way the road curves right in front of the hotel and not see it. So if we go to that golden Hollywood between the wars time... Who's living at the Marmont? Well, it started intended for people from Santa Barbara and Pasadena who had money and wanted a little flat in town. And gradually it became known to the movie colony. The second owner, the fellow who actually turned it into a hotel, was Albert Smith, who was one of the great architects of the early movie business. And he had so many connections in the film world that people began to patronize his hotel simply because they knew him as the owner. And one of the most famous in those early years was the 1920s and 30s sexpot Jean Harlow, who spent her third honeymoon there. She was in her early 20s and entertained gentlemen guests in her suite while her husband slept on the couch in the adjoining suite. <laughs> Take us to Penthouse 64. You know, there are only 63 units at the Chateau, and, and some of them are in outbuildings, the famous bungalows. John Belushi, the great comedian of the 70s and 80s, died in a Chateau Marmont bungalow. And in number 64 was favored by Howard Hughes, he owned property all over Los Angeles, and he had a sort of retainer for that room because it overlooked the swimming pool, and he could use that as a sort of airy and stake out new uh, young ladies to make uh, propositions to and perhaps put in movies, but more importantly, lure up to his unit. So if you're staying at the Marmont, to say that to people is a shorthand for a whole attitude. Yeah, it's remarkable that it's held this you know, vibe for a hundred years. It opened in 1929 for business, and it's always been a place where you're declaring yourself bohemian, you're declaring yourself 
you have a hand in, but you're outside the mainstream. And it, it was for years a preferred destination of, of creative types, of screenwriters, music composers. The film director, Nicholas Ray, lived in one of those bungalows on the back property for eight years. And he was always considered a guy, even though he was working in Hollywood, he was considered, you know, sort of arty, almost like a European. So, so it's always had that, that sort of cachet. And that ultimate American-European crossover, Jim Morrison, of course, fell off the roof. You know, rockers did not favor Chateau Marmont in the early days of rock and roll because it didn't have a bar. It didn't have a place where you could run into your groupies. It wasn't a place for socializing. But Morrison eventually became persona non grata up and down the strip at the other hotels. And he wound up in a bungalow at Chateau Marmont and injured his legs swinging. He liked to do a stunt he called Tarzan. And he grabbed a, a drain pipe and swung from one balcony to another. And he missed his footing and he landed on a roof over the entryway and then in a bush below. And uh, he was lucky to get away only with a, a dodgy leg. Did American actress Lindsay Lohan ever pay her bill? You know, Lindsay Lohan stayed there for about six weeks at a time when she was making a movie and she assumed that the producers of the movie were going to cover her expenses. And she did not pay that bill, which ran to over $43,000. This is about 10, 12 years ago. And the bill made its way into the press. The daily expenses on the mini bar would run into the thousands. Sean, Sean Levy, what a pleasure to talk. Where should I go next to get to the bottom of the real Hollywood? If you go into Hollywood proper, about you know mile and a half, two miles east of you is Musso and Frank's Grill, the oldest restaurant in Hollywood. This is a restaurant where Charlie Chaplin would have eaten while he was making his classic films. There are things on the menu that are absolutely out of fashion and they're prepared just as they would have been 75, 100 years ago and they're great. Perfect. I'm on my way. Sean, thank you. Thank you. Taxi! Ah, Musso and Frank on Hollywood Boulevard, please. Now, for the ultimate Hollywood lunch. It's just a 10-minute drive to Musso and Frank Grill from the Shadow Marmont, if, if you catch the lights. <laughs> Just enough time to read up on the menu. Oh, where's my phone? Wow, this is old Hollywood at its best. Corned beef and cabbage? Lobster Thermidor. <laughs> this place has served Hollywood's famous since 1919. With pretty much the same food. Uh, only the lobsters have been changed to protect the indigestant. Ah, I'll, I'll have the herring, please. Oh, and a martini. Hey, Jonathan, are you enjoying your marinated herring with sour cream sauce? I am. It's lovely. Thank you. Glad to hear it. My name is Dan Harari. I'm the communications director and the publicist for the Musso and Frank Grill in Hollywood. Dan, i got to thank you for... You must have pulled some strings to get me here in this booth, the Chaplin booth. The Chaplin booth is the most requested booth in the restaurant. Now, there's a story there, isn't there? The story is Charlie Chaplin had a Chaplin Studios on La Brea Avenue in Hollywood. Musso and Frank is on Hollywood Boulevard. It's only about maybe a mile and a half distance. And when he was making his movies in the olden days, he would ride his horse to Musso and Frank's for lunch. 
and Hollywood Boulevard was a dirt road at the time. And Charlie would tie his horse up to the post in front of the restaurant, <laughs> sit in the one booth that had the window, and that way he could keep an eye on his horse. Do we know what his favorite dish was? His favorite dish was the liver and kidney beans, liver and onions. <laughs> I mean, this must be a place to see and be seen. Absolutely. I mean, in 2019, Quentin Tarantino filmed his most recent film. First few scenes were inside Musso and Frank. The film was called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And inside Musso and Frank was Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Al Pacino. Can you imagine all three of those guys at the same place at the same time? <laughs> Steve McQueen used to sit right in front of the grill. So he had a Steve McQueen chair. When Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones walks in, he always says, oh, there's no place like home. I've been sitting here trying to imagine that dirt street out the front with horses. It's, it seems a world away. Well, next year, this is interesting, the Hollywood sign next year turns 100. It originally said Hollywood land. It was a real estate sign to sell homes in the, in the Hollywood area. Let me get you a martini, Dad, and thank you. I could use one right about. <laughs> I've had a busy day, man. I could use one. I'm a few martinis in, uh, so probably best I take a stroll back down Hollywood Boulevard for some air. Oh, oh, look, more stars. Oh, Kermit the Frog. Alfred Hitchcock, James Cagney. Oh, a busker. Hmm, let me see. Oh, I have any, <coughs> I have any U.S. change. Oh, he, sound, he sounds very familiar. I think this is weird. I think that's Australian singer Taryn Hanlon set up just over there by Nicolas Cage. Streets are dark had to park so far. Let my voice carry you safely to the car. Call on me. Hey, you you Darren Hanlon? Yes. Hello. Hi. An Australian in Hollywood. How beautiful. Yeah, well, there's a few of us. Where are you staying? This is kind of crazy, but my friends have uh, pulled money together for my birthday and they've bought me a, a room at the Chateau Marmont. How does, it, how does it feel to be in that place? Oh, it's, it's intimidating, I'd say. It's this strange feeling of not wanting to waste a minute. It's, it's so beautiful. You wouldn't call it extremely opulent or anything. It's just, it's just so stylishly fitted out. You know, it's vintage Hollywood. The soap's monogrammed. There's a little there's a little desk with monogrammed paper. So I've written a few letters and sent them <laughs> to friends back home. And do you just sort of feel the history of the place? You do, and that's you know, it's one of these places, these hotels that it trades on its legend. You stay there hoping some of it will rub off on you. You, you know, I spent the night. I just didn't want to waste a, a, a minute, so I sat in every chair. <laughs> I tried to write music, and I just found it too intimidating. What a wonderful, a wonderful coincidence, Darren, to meet you, and, and that you're staying at the Marmot. That is just perfect. But I'm, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted your song. You should, you should continue. Okay, yeah, I've, I've made about six dollars here, so I'll, okay. I'll try and get play to on. Yeah, <laughs> you got a hotel bill. <laughs> when the road fans out in all directions. I mean, don't get me wrong, the Chateau looked great, but maybe a little outside my budget. 
where to stay? I, I could go there. I, I could always do a Lindsay Lohan. Is that call box ringing? Oh, I've seen this in movies. There's a call box ringing. Let me, let me pick it up. What are the circumstances? Right? I don't totally understand what is happening in the moment. You know, acting is more than just saying your lines, right? And it's more than, than pumping emotion into a scene to justify those lines that you think you've got to say. So I'm wondering, what are you doing here? Hello? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you are... I'm David Lee Strasberg. I'm the creative director of the Lee Strasberg Theory and Film Institute. What's Hollywood got to do with acting? Are, are you here to act? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but, but what does Hollywood have to do with acting? If you're serious about acting, you come here. This is where the dreams are brewed. But if I come to the, the Lee Strasberg Theatre and Film Institute, I've, I've got a serious dream. We're looking for committed people. And commitment's all about what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to risk? This is a wonderful inheritance from, from your father, of course, from the, the actor's studio. What did you learn from him? Probably one of the most fundamental things for me is this notion of technique. To me, he had a lot of great traits, a lot of genius and a lot of talent and wisdom. But maybe his greatest trait is that when he looked at you, you were the only thing that mattered. And the people, though, that received that gaze, I'm, I'm thinking Montgomery Cliff, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, Pacino, extraordinary examples of, of this craft. When Marilyn first came to meet my father, introduced by Elia Kazan, and, you know, Marilyn is quite a progressive woman, right? In the 1950s, at the height of an era where, you know, men were men and women were women and, and were in the kitchen and all these gender roles were so ironclad, She's one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, yes, but she breaks her contract with 20th Century Fox, creates her own production company, says, I want to own my work, and I want to do a different kind of work. I want to do better work. So she talks to Aria Kazan. Kazan introduces her to my father, and she comes to our apartment, and she tells my dad, you know, I'd love to study with you, this and that and the other. And you know, one of the things Marilyn was renowned for was that she was always late wherever she would go. <laughs> 10 minutes late, 30 minutes late, four hours late. You know, she was constantly running away. And he said, uh, I'm not sure I can have the impasse. She said, Lee, I am psychologically unable to be anywhere on time. <laughs> and he said, that's okay, darling. If you cannot be on time, be early. Nice. And literally, <laughs> she would come three hours before class. She'd sit out in the lobby and, and read a play. She would come the night before, sleep over at the house with my half-sister, Susan, so that she would be a day early for class. Because she knew if she tried to get there on time, she wouldn't get there. <laughs> so she took his advice. He said, you know, coming on time is not just about the minute. It's about respect, respecting yourself, respecting what you can accomplish in that time. And she wanted to do that. She didn't know how. So we showed her how, so she would come early. David, I'm inspired. I think, I think maybe me, maybe I'm performance out in the street. But I'll, I'll, I'll head off. I'll give that a try. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm feeling talented, in touch with myself, but still curious about this place. If the Hollywood sign is the most recognisable cultural icon of LA, well, the palm trees that line the boulevards and avenues of this place must, well, they must come a close second. These trees are, are astounding. If, if I think of LA, and here it is, I, I think of David Lee Roth in a convertible and a, and a row of palm trees. The sun that's beginning to go down. Uh, this is the perfect photo. Mm, when I put my phone. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I, I, I was just in your shot. 
Uh, also uh, admiring the palms, I see. I'm Jared Farmer, author of Trees in Paradise, a California history. Tell me, Jared, about these palms. That, that This is so symbolic of the city. Well, they certainly are now, but they weren't always. I mean, if you think about the first century of the city of Los Angeles, first founded by Mexicans, not Americans, it was not famous for its palms. In fact, there are no palms native to the coastal plain of Southern California. Let's say it's like 1900, let's say. Los Angeles, like Melbourne, has gone through one of the great real estate bubbles of the late 19th century. There would be lots of trees along streets, business boulevards, yards. But the number one tree would be what California is called the pepper tree. So what's the turning point there? Why, why does this suddenly change? Back in the early 20th century, if you were the equivalent of a billionaire today, instead of you know buying a private island and a super yet, you would buy a citrus ranch. There was an insect called scale that basically lived in the pepper trees. The pepper trees served as a kind of like insect reservoir. Uh, <laughs> citrus growers basically said that the pepper trees must go. <laughs> They're going to go. And so like, people just started pulling them out, cutting them down. The city of Los Angeles issued an order saying like no more pepper trees. Wow. In, in this same era, this is around the 1920s, this is like another big real estate boom era, and it's with automobiles now, and the city's sort of laying out the whole grid that would become today's L.A., and they're also planning for the Olympics, and they wanted to kind of show off this new gridded automobile city, the kind of city that no one had ever built before. So they needed a tree that was cheap, right? Yeah. That will grow fast and will be kind of distinctive and will have some sort of advertising quality. And so that's when they turned to palms. But it wasn't until the 20s that the city itself started planting by the thousands these little palms. And they were Mexican fan palms, which were native to Baja and Sonora, not too far away, but a pretty different habitat zone. And at first they were just little spiky tufts. You know, they didn't look like much. And even by the time of the Olympics, it was not that impressive, though distinctive. But then they just kept on growing, and people didn't <laughs> water them much. But it turns out these trees were really hardy. They're, they're desert plants. They grew impossibly tall, and sometimes people call them sky dusters because they catch the last light of the sunset. Hmm. At some point, L.A. becomes the most photographed and the most famous city in the world in terms of visuals because hmm. so many TV shows and movies are made there. It becomes the backdrop for everything. And then the palm is that backdrop. Because of TV and movies, this association between the city and the palms becomes cemented in a way that it came, I think, as a shock to many when the city decided in the early part of this century to stop replacing palm trees, except for designated zones, including Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> because yeah. tourists expect to see palms and they will see palms there throughout the rest of the city now they do not replace them when they die and there are some good reasons for that my eyes are now open it is wonderful to hear the stories of things like this things that are ubiquitous that are stamped on collective memory but so seldom understood so very grateful you're very welcome thank you There it is. I came to Hollywood looking for fame, and all I found was a marinated herring and a palm tree. But, but I'd learned something there among the sidewalk stars, the, the cosy three martini booths. I learned that fame, just like this place, comes from nothing. And where does it end? 
maybe it's as fleeting as sunset on a palm frond. Hollywood, a sign on a hill that once sold real estate and now sells dreams. A bunch of paddocks and dusty tracks that somehow became the very centre of our idea of what it is to be a somebody. What's that dream made of? A hotel? A long lunch? Maybe it's a, a feat of the imagination, something hard to grab, even, even harder to keep. But if we can't have celebrity, at least we can get corned beef and cabbage. And that might be for the best. You've been listening to Return Ticket, this time in Hollywood. You heard from Sean Levy, Darren Harari, Darren Hanlon and Jared Farmer. Producers are Hayley Crane and Alan Whedon. Technical production and musical theme by Brendan O'Neill. Executive producer, Rhiannon Brown. If you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Green. Hey everyone, Miff and Zan here, hosts of the Bang On podcast. Bang On's a one-stop shop for all the conversations you need to be across this week, but don't have time to read the think pieces for. So many think pieces. We are the cheat's guide to the think pieces. We also love to bang on about TV shows, books, movies, and even fashion. We want to take being across news and pop culture off your mental to-do list and turn it into a fun hang with mates. Come and join the Bang Fam. You can find us on the ABC Listen app.